0: Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step based organizations or groups in any way. This is the final episode of season one. And it's been a blessing, man, just to have this opportunity, this platform, and all the people that I've been able to reach and the ones who've reached out to me. I appreciate everyone's continued support. Season two is going to be starting very shortly, and it's going to be nothing but interviews with just guys in recovery. So you get to see what their journey looks like, because everybody's journey looks different. So I want to give an opportunity just to hear a bunch of different stories. Man, it's just an important thing to understand. That we're all the same. But to know the program is to know the book. So this final episode, I just kind of wanted to touch a little bit on everything that we've kind of went went uh, over so far. The first thing that we talked about, the first episode that I posted out of the book was the doctor's opinion. The mental obsession, the physical allergy that we have. I obsess over wanting to change the way I feel. I put the substance into my body. And then what happens there is craving kicks in and I want more. I want more, I want more, I want more. Dr. Silkworth explains that very well. It's of the mind and the body. And one of the most important things for me in my recovery is the part where it says a doctor's series that we have an allergy, it interests us. But as layman, as our opinion, as it sounds, may of course mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers or users, it explains many things for which I could not otherwise account. So when I'm in the midst of a mental obsession, the physical allergy, the external things in my life, the insanity that when I get sober and I feel those things again, I think I'm a horrible person for doing the things that I've done to the people that I love the most. I start to understand that's because I'm in the midst of a mental obsession. That craving is there and it's out of my control. So I'm not a bad person. I'm just a sick person with an untreated illness. And then what I really liked about the doctor's opinion as well is it classifies the five different types of users. And I could be all five types just depending on where I'm at in my addiction in that moment. And then it went on to talk about making the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. I'll sacrifice everything. I'll give it all away. My family, my freedom, my possessions, my happiness, my serenity. I'll give it all away and try it again. And remember, that's why it's a thinking problem because I think that this time will be different when I use Despite evidence that shows me it's never been different. I give everything away and I sacrifice everything every single time. It centers in our mind. It talked about the cycles of a spree. Obsessing over wanting to change the way I feel. Then desire kicks in. Then I relapse. And whatever that run ends, it's remorse. And then I repeat it. I do it over and over and over again. It's the negative emotions that consume me when I feel again. Because the horrible things that I've done... And drugs and alcohol are the solution, not the problem. Don't think, don't feel, don't care. But what's most important for me to really identify in doctor's opinion, in the doctor's opinion, is how it says the solution many different times. The power that pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death, moral psychology, psychic change, science of the mind, recreating our lives. This power that we tap into is the solution. Steps two and three, one, two, and three. Powerless and unmanageable and we ask for help and we come to believe in a higher power. And in doing so, in that beginning belief, I'm able to identify some spiritual characteristics. So when I do step three, I know what my part is. I know what the action steps is. The decision that I'm making is for my actions to reflect that belief in step two. And I start to really get the first little bit of understanding through the doctor's opinion. It's very powerful and very important. That's why we start there. And then I go to Bill's story and I get to really look at Bill's story. And the first nine pages of Bill's story is the progression of his disease. And it's my job to diagnose myself with the first 51 pages of the big book. And Bill's story gives me the ability to look at a story from the 30s, an alcoholic story from the 30s and see all the characteristics of his disease, the same manifestations of his alcoholic mentality, the same scenarios, the same situations. The only thing that's different is the people involved in the environment. But it's my story, and I start to really understand that. And then I get to see the rest of the pages in there from 9 to 16 or whatever it is. I start to really understand how the program loosely uh, is formed off of right? Ebby comes in and he sees Ebby and he's able to talk about his own conception of higher power in the Oxford group. And it's loosely, you can kind of see the last couple pages, how the steps kind of come into play. But really Bill's story is for me to identify with his story as if it's mine. And then I go to there is a solution. And the first thing it talks about is being members of a shipwreck. We talk about that a lot, being members of a shipwreck. In my disease, I'm out there in the middle of the ocean, Floating by myself every day is a struggle to keep my head above water. I'm tired. It's painful. Man, I just want sometimes I just want to give up. We're members of a shipwreck. And when we recover together through the fellowship, through the program, we're just joined like brothers, man, because we've escaped disaster together. Some people will say that we sit in circles so we can in meetings so we could float better. But the book, the book is the life preserver. And then it goes on to compare cancer versus addiction, right? We can agree that the disease of addiction is a disease because it's chronic. It gets worse, never better. And if left untreated, it causes death. Genetics isn't scientifically proven yet, but for the most part, everybody's got someone in either their immediate family, their extended family. That's an addict, man. Um, and so we start to understand that, but it compares cancer versus addiction. When someone has cancer, no one is angry or hurt. All is sorry for him, but not so with addiction, right? Because we annihilate all things worthwhile in life. And because of that, it's extremely difficult for people to support us in the same way that they would support someone with cancer. And then it went through to classify the three different types of users, right? The moderate user, the hard user, and the real alcoholic, the real addict, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And that description of the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde fits me exactly. But what I really like, and for the people out there, That their situation allows them to give all their time to this work. Take advantage of it. Because in the doc, in the, there is a solution. It says a few are fortunate to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to this work. And I remember when I first started this journey, I was in prison. There wasn't. I was the few, man. I really gravitated towards that, and I used it as a motivator to get my feet moving a little bit quicker every day because there was never going to be a time in my life when I would have the opportunity to dedicate so much time to this disease, to this recovery, to recovering physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to removing the obsession to change the way I feel, to getting just digging in on these steps. If you're in that position and you're that few, get them feet moving, man. Because people are out there dying every day and they could have recovered if they enjoyed the opportunity that we have. So take advantage of that. It asks you why. Why do you do what you do? And there is a solution. In their hearts, they really don't know why they do it. Why is it we do it? And you might not have an answer to You actually work a a thorough and honest four-step. You just might not have an answer. It talked about why it centers in our mind. And I already kind of said that, man. Like, I think that it's going to be different this time, despite evidence and data that I've collected over decades that shows me that once I start, I can't stop and I lose everything. But I think that it'll be different. And so it kind of talks about that, too, man. It's in our mind. And then you have the there is a solution obsession. The obsession that somehow, someday I'll beat the game, but I often suspect I'm down for the count. And then ultimately goes into what the solution is. Having a psychic change. How do we do that? Steps one, two, and three—that is the solution. And then ultimately it gives a story that kind of wraps it up a little bit. All this is allowing you to identify with everything that we've just talked about so far that leads you into step one. So when you get to step one, more about alcoholism, you're able to fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic and addict. That's it. Nobody comes to the program and to the fellowship and to listen to podcasts and go to meetings and get a sponsor when you're all stars at life. It just doesn't happen. It's not like, oh, my life's so good that I think today I'm going to go check out a meeting. We come when we've been given the gift of pain and desperation. But the key is, is to capitalize on that pain and get recovery and not relief because it's real easy to mistake relief for recovery. But more about alcoholism makes some points, man. And we have the obsession for more about alcoholism. Right? There's the idea that somehow, someday, we'll be able to control and enjoy our using is the great obsession of every abnormal user, but the persistence of the illusion is astonishing that we'll pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. I'll continue to try to prove myself exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic, and I'll pursue that till I die or I go insane. It talked about it being progressive. If this disease is progressive and it gets worse, never better, then that shows me and tells me that I have to have an extremely aggressive recovery. I have to stay ahead of this thing. The same lengths I was willing to go for my addiction, I have to be willing to go farther for my recovery and I have to do it on a day-to-day basis. And then what it does is it makes th- it makes four major points and then a story from one of the first hundred members. The first story is about it being progressive, right? The guy stopped for 25 years, remained bone dry, exceptional man. He picked up again and was dead within four years. The case, this this story contains a powerful lesson. Most of us believe that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. I talked about the baffling feature of addiction. We say that in meetings, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Well, the baffling feature of addiction is the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I could see the need everywhere. I could wish it, but I just can't not not use. That's the baffling feature of it. The next story that I kind of talked about was the thinking problem, right? End of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon, right? It talks about uh, being controlled by our thoughts and our emotions, having resentments, anger. And next thing you know, I'm at a roadside place having a bar. And I think I think that if I just put milk with whiskey, it won't hurt me this time. And then the jaywalking story. And I love reading the jaywalking story for the first time with a newcomer. And I remember my experience. And the whole time I'm reading that, man, I'm thinking this jaywalker is nuts, But if you substitute jaywalking for addiction, the illustration would fit us exactly. And it's a real eye-opening moment because you get to really see the insanity of this thing. And then we talk about self-knowledge as well in this chapter. Self-knowledge, the easiest way I could explain self-knowledge is this. If I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, hey, Jason, you got cancer. And if you don't treat it, you're going to die. It's going to get worse, never better. You've seen people all around you have died from cancer. And I tell the doctor, hey, doc. Thanks for the information. Now I know. See you later. It's the same thing with our addiction. Just knowing and not treating it isn't going to get the job done. Self-knowledge will never fix it. Just the powerless and the unmanageability of the addiction, man. But most importantly, at the very end of the chapter, it says most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they're able to get results. We got to wave that white flag This is the last resort. We got to feel defeated. We got to feel that pain. We got to capitalize on it to do something different, man. It's so critical. Ultimately leading from step one to really truly understand that. Then that gives us the ability to go into step two. The principle associated with step one is honesty. The principle associated with step two is hope. So I'm admitting that I'm insane in step one. And I'm hoping and believing in a higher power that can restore me to sanity in step two. And I really love we agnostics. It makes a whole bunch of major points in there. And what we agnostics is designed to do is it's designed to take every single objection away from you. It rebuttals you before you can give an objection. So it takes them all away from you. So ultimately, you can believe at the end. And the first thing it starts out is it talks about the morals and values and philosophical convictions galore. But we couldn't live up to them even though we tried. So just having morals and values and, and wanting to be a good father, son, husband and brother and to be loving and sober and honest and forgiving and understanding and tolerant and committed and active and, and all those things, just wanting to do that isn't enough because lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power grade in ourselves. So we tap into this belief, this beginning belief, we list some morals, some values, some spiritual characteristics, all those things that are important to us that we believe our higher power to be. And we make a decision in step three to, to, to live that way, to let our actions reflect it. So that's the first thing it talks about. It kinda, and then it kind of goes into being prejudiced about God having it impressed upon us as a child or having a resentment towards God. And the easiest thing that I've ever been able to do with anyone I've ever worked with that this is a troubled area for them. When you see the word G-O-D, it means good orderly direction. Good orderly direction. And it's worked every time. Let's start there. Because just like your disease is progressive, just like your recovery is progressive, spirituality is progressive as well. And then it goes into just believe. Remember, came to believe all we want you to believe. And in that part in the book, it has some very powerful vocabulary. You don't even have to fully define or comprehend that power. You just got to be willing to believe and you'll get results. Your inadequate, insufficient belief is still sufficient to get results. It's open to all men and you don't have to consider another's conception of God. It's open to everyone. Just believe because it's the start is going to grow with growth and it uses these words in the book. The vocabulary is powerful when I understand it. I see the point that it's trying to make and I'm able to grasp it and make it my own and apply it in my life because the power from the knowledge comes from the application. So it talks about just believing. It talks about visual proof being the weakest proof. And it uses, you know, how much is everything, you know, pure reason and visual proof, right? And it talks about electricity and the prosaic steel girder, masses, of electrons. But then it says that people around us are presenting a pretty powerful argument why one should have faith. We see these people all around us. Instead of cynically dissecting these beliefs and windy arguments and doing all these things, we have to see because what it also says is if we miss the beauty of the forest because we get diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. And I don't want that to happen to anyone. Instead of going to meetings or going to church or any path of recovery you work, instead of going and looking for the differences, listen for the similarities. Because if you don't, you'll miss the beauty of the forest because you get diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. It talked about having faith and stepping bridge to shore. And ultimately what it ends up with is talking about the material we have our readiness to change our point of view with material things all the time. I do it all the time. I get I throw away the old theory or gadget which works for something better which, which is better. This is better. So you can't tell me you don't have your point to change material world. You can't tell me you don't have the capacity for faith because we're sitting here right now. You can't tell me that just having morals and values is good enough because you've always had them, but your actions reflect something different. You can't tell me that you have to have pure visual proof. You can't tell me You just can't do it. So at this point, are you willing to believe that there's a power grade in yourself? And let's start there. But it's important to list the spiritual characteristics that we can live by. And then ultimately, we transition into how it works in step three. You know, in step three, the principle associated with that is faith. For me, step three has a couple major parts. The first part is the actor scenario. And I start to try to arrange life to suit myself. So I'm an actor and it's exhausting Right. On one occasion, I'm more demanding than gracious. I have varied traits. Right. I want everyone to do as I wished. If everyone did what I wanted, the show would be great. But it doesn't work that way because I'm running on self. And then it goes into the hundred forms of self. Right. Basically, letting us know that we have to have God. We have to have God in our life. And one of my favorite parts it says next year after in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the father. We are his children. He is the principal. We are his agents. Most good ideas are simple, and this was the keystone through the new and triumphant arc to which we passed the freedom. When we sincerely, key words, sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Why? Because we had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him, performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter we were reborn. Whoa reborn. And that leads us right into the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I will help with thy power and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Let everybody bear witness to the change in me, to how powerful you are. And when I become visual proof and they see that, I'll be able to help them of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And that's the decision I'm making. My decision is to let my actions reflect my belief in live in God's will and to, and to channel that power that flows through me and in me and gives me the ability to make these changes that I've wanted to do for so long, but I just haven't been able to start or do it long enough to get some results. But God can make that possible. But I have to sincerely take that position. And that, that leads us into step three. And then from step three, we can kind of get into step four now. And it says, ne- next we launch on the course of vigorous action. Vigorous meaning with energy, intensity, and force. It doesn't say take your sweet ass time. It says vigorous and strenuous effort to face and rid yourself of the things that have been blocking you. Because remember, it's a fact-finding, fact-facing basis. The step four has got three major parts. The first part's the resentments. Strenuous and vigorous effort fact-finding, fact-facing process. You hear people say it all the time. Resentments are the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. We considered its common manifestations. The reason it's the number one offender, because when I wrote all my resentments down and I ultimately look at that fourth column, which is my part, and I see that, I start to understand that I play a part in every single resentment. The lying, the cheating, the manipulating, the stealing, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the ego. So that tells me today, if I'm creating a resentment in my life, I'm playing a part in it because I played a part in every other single one of them. So that tells me my disease is manifesting itself. And if I live in that disease and those character defects long enough, I want to change the way I feel again. That's just the bottom line of it. Because these are the things that it talks about that are blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit. Everything in my four-step is blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit. So as I chip away the resentments, as I chip away the fears, as I start to understand the sex inventory and relationships, as I have a spiritual experience in five, I get blasted by the sunlight of the spirit. And if you've seen me lately, I got a good tan. The four-step gives us the ability to have the tools to take the power away from it. And the four-step gives us, so after we make this list, first we're going to say, we're going to write it all down. Who you mad at? Why you mad at them? What did it affect? Your your pocketbook, your self-esteem, your pride, your emotional security. And then we look at our part. And once we have all that down there, it's important to sit down with a sponsor and to really identify how you're going to be able to start, start, The healing process the book gives us four major tools the first tool is to treat people like they're sick because they like ourselves are sick too so you got to understand that they're sick and that's what it looks like or they're doing the best with what they got and it isn't much if they're an addict what do you expect and it talks about destroying our chance of being helpful if my very life depends upon the constant thought of others and how i may help meet their needs if i'm creating resentment over you i surely can't help you and if you're like me when you create resentments and the amount of space that it rents in your head, you ain't gonna be able to help anyone because all you're doing is plotting all day. Page 552 is the third tool. Pray for the person for two weeks. Pray for them even if you don't mean it in its only words. Do it anyways. Pray for everything you want to be given to yourself to be given to them. And at the end of the two weeks, you'll come to find that you mean it. Page 552, that's the third tool. And ultimately, the biggest tool is looking at our part. When I see the part that I played, and if I don't play a part specifically in that resentment, in that event, well, I have to look at the the actions, my actions on the sum of the relationship. If I look at the total sum of the interactions in that relationship, my part is way greater and it always has been. So that gives me the ability to understand, man. But the resentments will kill you. And then ultimately, it kind of leads into the fears, you know. And if I back up one second for the resentments, it's very difficult to let go of some resentments that you didn't play a part in. That is a thing, too. And a lot of times it's when you're a child. For example, if you're being bullied, how do you forgive that person if you don't play a part in it? So it takes action. You might have to go find an opportunity to be able to speak to at-risk youth about bullying. And in that moment, when you have that conversation, you start to feel a little bit of gratitude that that happened to you. And it gives you the ability to be more forgiving because now you're more qualified to help others. Everything requires action. And then we transition into the fears. The opposite of fear is faith. So we start to look at how fear touches every aspect of your life. But what's important is really to identify how self-will, how self-sufficiency has served you. Because we're on a different basis, the basis in trusting and relying upon God. What's God's sufficiency look like? You have to have faith because men of faith are courageous. It tells me that. And I start to understand through doing the step work that there are solutions to my fears. And the fears are so powerful to really look at. What's the fear and why is it the fear? That's the first column. The second column is self-sufficiency, and I'll see the insanity. I have a fear of going back to prison. How does Jason handle that on self-will? Commit five felonies a day. That's the insanity of my self-will. That's the insanity of my disease. When I look at that middle column, I start to understand that everything I do feeds right into my fear, so I have to use just to not think or feel or care. I have to, but I don't live that way today. I'm trusting and relying upon God. So what's that third column, the God sufficiency? I start to establish my top five list of the solutions to my fears. And now I know what my action part is. When I live in the solution and God's sufficiency long enough, my fears fall from me. They just do. Today I'm fearless. But I have to maintain this lifestyle. I have to maintain this identity. I have to maintain God's will because I have a daily reprieve, a stay from execution. So I have to really look at these fears, but most importantly is that third column. And when I sit down with my sponsor and I go over that third column, I'm able to look at the new solutions to my fears and it gives me the blueprint of how to overcome them. And then I look at the sex inventory and I start to just deflate ego real quick. In the beginning of the book, in the first chapter of it, it starts on the very bottom of 68, well, 69 really. It's kind of funny, but you know, that's where you'll find the the, the meat of uh, the sex inventory It says we all have sex problems. Let's not get way off track. So what we're going to do is we're going to analyze the past relationships that we've had so ultimately we can see where we went wrong. The four step gives us the ability to basically have the clear-cut game plan of exactly every single thing that I need to change. I have it all on paper in front of me in black and white. I got to do the opposite of everything I used to do. Everything that I see, the fact-finding, fact-facing basis, my four step, I got to change everything there. So this way I could shape a new ideal. And it talks about that a sane and healthy ideal of my future sex life. If life is a series of relationships and I don't know how to have them because I've been involved in them. And I start to see that through doing the the sex inventory. You know, the sex inventory, sure, it's about sexual relationships. But really what it's about, the totality of it, is how to have meaningful relationships going further. How to shape the sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. And it says whatever we, our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. I have to be willing to grow toward that. In order to attract that relationship, I got to possess those qualities that I'm looking for. Because it goes on to say, if we fall short of this chosen ideal and I get in a bad relationship, all I'm gaining through the program is awareness. And if I get into that relationship, I got a 50% chance of using. It. It's a half truth. But if I stay in that relationship, my conduct continues to harm others. I'm quite sure to use. We're not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. So what I have to do is I analyze the major relationships I've had in my life. Who is it? What the relationship looked like? What were the characteristics, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the passivity, the jealousness, the suspicion, all these things that I arouse in these relationships, I'm able to identify them and understand them, ultimately shaping the new life that I want to have. And what I've started to understand, the five non-negotiables of my relationships, in order to have a meaningful relationship with me, it's based off five things. Joint action, shared decisions, open communication, genuine concern for one another, and honesty. Without those five things in a relationship, there is no relationship. So I really start to understand that. And depending on, upon the individual I'm working with, their whole everybody's situation is different. So we have to prepare for that. We have to. We can have the greatest plan in the world, but throw a relationship into the mix. We make them our higher power and we're destined for doom. They always say, wait a year before you get in a relationship. Your first year of recovery. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds great. I haven't seen many people do it though. So I have to be prepared. Ultimately leading into the fifth step. And step five has some major points as well. And step five is one of the most critical aspects of the program. Because the, I'm only as sick as my secrets, and I have to remember that. And it's it's extremely important. It says, having persevered with the rest of the program, they wonder why they fell. They never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they lost their egos and fear. They only thought they humbled themselves. Why... I could admit everything in a fist step. I can get honest about everything, but I could hold on to that one thing and that one event, that one thing that I say that I'm never going to admit to anybody. That's that one thing that causes me guilt, shame, embarrassment, remorse, regret, all the perfect storm of combinations of character defects that my disease needs for me to want to change the way I feel again. Man, we dude. Step five, we begin to feel like we're having a, a spiritual experience in that step. Why? Because it's the first time that we get honest and we can finally just take a deep breath. But it says, every twisted character, every dark cranny of the past, withholding nothing, we could look the world in the eye, we could be alone at perfect ease, Our our fears fall from us, we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. Some of us may have spiritual beliefs, but we now begin to feel like we're having a spiritual experience because it's the first time that we've been honest. And when our sponsor says, me too, and he gives us a hug and he doesn't leave, he doesn't punch us, when he says, me too man, that's powerful. And for me and all the guys, I've had the privilege and the blessing of just playing a small part in the recovery and sponsoring them. And I get to do a fist step. Every time I get to use my fist step to help them to be more honest, to do those things, I forgive myself a little bit more. And over a period of time, I've attached so many times to gratitude for those moments and those fist steps. And it's given me the ability, man, oh, to forgive myself truly. It also talks about leading a double life. We tremble to think that someone might have observed what just happened on that last run. Did they see it? What do they know? In the morning we wake up, we're under constant fear and tension. This makes for more using. Don't think, don't feel, don't care. That's another example of the cycle of the spree like we talked about in the doctor's opinion. It gives a good description of that in step five. But most of us understand that when we have that fifth step experience, just being honest for the first time, oh my, it's like a weight was lifted off our chest. So after we do the four and the five, and after we do that, it says we return home for an hour where we could be quiet, carefully reviewing what we've done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. We go back for, through the first five proposals because we're building a foundation through which we shall walk a free man. So we want to make sure that that foundation, the stones are properly in place we haven't skimped in the cement, put in the foundation. We haven't tried to make mortar without sand. So we go back through all of the homework, all the chapters, everything we've done so far, and we make sure that we haven't left anything out. Is there anything I wanted to add to step one to the powerless and unmanageability? Is there anything that I fully concede? Do I have a reservation? Do I have to go back through that? I look at my step two homework and I start to see uh, if I want to add any morals or values or my the evolution of my spirituality might have changed. Do I want to add anything to that? I get down on my knees and I reaffirm that third step. I go back through all three parts of the four step, the resentments, the fears, the sex inventory, because nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. Am I leaving anything out intentionally? If I think about it, I got to write it down. That's the bottom line of it. Then I go back to the fifth step and I say, man, is there that one thing that those two things, those three things, is there anything I'm holding out? Because I want, and ultimately it comes down to this one question. My sponsor used to ask me it all the time. How free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? I want to be as free as I can be. So if so, don't take any chances. If you think about it, write it down. So if I can answer to my satisfaction, then I can move on to step six. Step six is the willingness step. And it's real easy to overlook because it's a paragraph. Became willing to remove the objectionable. Everything from four and five, the objectionable, those character defects that are in black and white. Am I willing to let those things go now? Am I willing to move forward? Can I create this new identity? Do I give it to my higher power? Do I have trust? Do I have faith? Do I have hope? Am I being honest? Am I being courageous? Do I have integrity? Those character defects are hard to shake because at some point they had extreme amount of value to me. So I have to be willing to let those things go. In step six, when I work with a guy, start to establish their identity. I have them write down the character assets they possess and the character defects that they possess. So we make a list of the assets because we want to appreciate the hell out of the fact that we have character assets today at this point. And we have to identify the character defects. So when we get to that seventh step, which is the continuation of the third step because it says amen, amen at the end. I'm basically reaffirming my third step decision with step seven. The principle associated with step seven is humility. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Here you are, God, you got me, good and bad. Now I've established that. Remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Give me the strength as I go out from here to do your work. And your work is the living character asset to be selfless, to be positive, and to have gratitude. And in doing all those things, the promises materialize over and over in my life. And after that, I'm able to move into steps eight and nine. And I'm able to really look at those things. And I'm really able to understand what the amends process is all about. There's the five-step amends process, man. I have to gain consent. I need to speak to you, mom. I need to speak to you, Ash. I need to speak to you, dad. This is a very important part of my recovery. Are you open to hearing it? I was wrong when I. Character defects, specificness of situations, only you can judge that situation. Is there any other ways that I've harmed you, step three? Is there any other ways that I've harmed you I'm unaware of? Because there could quite possibly be. And you listen. Four, is there anything I can do to make it right? Because following through on that action is another way it makes it different. And then ultimately, the fifth part of that is the action step that will follow. I know this is just the beginning and it doesn't make those things right. All I'm hoping, mom, is that this creates some momentum for the future. Watch my feet, not my lips. As long as I maintain God's will and work this program, I'll never harm or offend you or anyone in that way again. It's real simple, real easy, and that's the five-step amends process. But the fifth the eighth and ninth step, excuse me, the eighth and ninth step just lays out some things that we're going to deal with. First, it's reminding us that we're there to sweep off our side of the street. We're there to remove the debris which we've accumulated out of running the light, the show ourselves by living on self-will. We're there to do that for ourselves. The amends is for ourselves so we can get honest so we can clear that wreckage. It does say nine times out of ten, the unexpected happens. But you also got to remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness will make a skeptic out of anyone. So this is the beginning. So it talks about three major parts. First thing it talks about is if we owe money, we got to pay it. We can't dodge our creditors. We owe, we pay. And then it talks about criminal offenses. But the key word to that is just being willing, willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to do anything I have to do to maintain the way I feel today in God's presence in my life, and this identity, and the relationships that I have, and the true happiness. That's the internal connection that brings me joy. I have to be willing to do anything it takes. And if that means standing in front of a judge admitting my wrongs, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And then it talks about the family. We have to take the lead. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respected homes. You got to remember we so shockingly treated the family. We have to take the lead. A remorseful mumbling won't fit the bill at all. It just won't. We can't just talk about it. We have to be about it and we have to do it at all times. Because again, we're like a tornado roaring our way through the lives of others. Living with an addict, loving an addict, were tornadoes in their lives. So we have to understand that. And no matter what happens at home, no matter what, we stay in God's will. And that's how they know it's different. We react, it's bad. But when we respond, it should be healthy. And that's what the program is teaching us. And then it talks about domestic relationships with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever the case looks like for you. It says, should we tell her in detail? She'll want to know everything. Not always, we think. If she knows we've been wild, man, and it's, it's completely up to you the way you handle that situation. Whether it's going to be character defects you're going to admit or you're going to admit specificness. And it's your opportunity to sit down with your sponsor and really go over every single amends that you're going to have to make and figure out the healthiest way because we never want to cause more harm to save our own skin. We don't want to do that. We never want to cause more harm. So you make the list, the ones you can do now, the ones that are going to have to wait, the ones that are going to be living and you get to making them right away. You have to make them. You can't drag your feet on this step either. And it's good. You know, it's going to continue for a lifetime. So then we move on to step 10. And so when we get to step 10, we start to look at the maintenance steps of the program. So looking at step 10, we have to understand the The principle associated with step 10 is perseverance. Because this is going to continue for a lifetime. When these things crop up, you know, I love when people say, I'm going to go home at night and I'm going to do a step 10. That is step 11. Step 10 tells me when these things crop up at once. We apply the program at once. It doesn't say hold on to it, chew on it, sit in it, and then go home at night and write about it. It says when these things crop up. We continue to watch for fear, resentment, dishonesty, and selfishness. In a previous episode, I talked about character defects. And the way that I look at my character defects is as in a tree. And the four roots of that tree is fear, resentment, dishonesty, and selfishness. If I can keep those four things in check, the roots won't take soil. My character defect tree won't grow. Because if it grows, the branches that stem out are hundreds upon hundreds of other character defects. That could be overwhelming. But if I keep those four in check... That tree just doesn't grow. So I have to watch out for those four things, especially on a day-to-day basis. And when they crop up, I apply the basic tools of the program. And it says right after it says that in the book, it says the three basic tools of the program. Get connected to God's will. Talk about the way I feel. And when all else fails, I go find someone to help because it immediately gets me out of self. Because remember... It's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels, but we're headed for trouble if we do, because drugs and alcohol is a subtle foe. What we have is a daily reprieve. A reprieve is a stay from execution, a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day I have to maintain my spiritual condition because this disease wants me dead. I can't get complacent. I can't rest on my laurels. I can't say, oh, I'm at step 10 now. I'm going to take my foot off the gas. Oh, I I, those amends, I did a couple of them. I'll do them later. I'm willing to do them. We have to continue to take action on suit up and show up every day. We have to because this thing thing wants us dead. A daily reprieve. A reprieve, again, is a stay from execution. They give that to people on death row. We're on death row with this disease. So if you want to reprieve, if you want to stay from execution, maintain your spiritual fitness. And it talks about needing more action, ultimately leading into step 11. Step 11 is how we maintain God's will. So the principle associated with step 11 is awareness of God. Am I aware of my actions on a day-to-day basis? The easiest way I could explain the difference between God's will and self-will, it's real simple for me. My will, Jason's will, self-will, is character defects, selfishness, and negativity. God's will, that's the very simplest form for me to understand it and be able to apply it to be aware of which will I'm in and operating in and living in. God's will is to be positive, to have gratitude, to be selfless, and to live in character assets. So now I know the difference on a simpler level so I could understand where I'm at. And step 11 is how do I maintain God's will on the sum of my actions on a day-to-day basis? It has to represent God's will more than it does Jason's will. So it gives me some suggestions on how to do that. it talks about prayer and meditation. The easiest way that I could explain that is prayer is talking to your higher power and meditation is listening. And then it gives us those questions of when we go home at night, it says, when we retire at night. This is the, the inventory we do at the end of the night. When we retire at night, we think about these questions. Do I owe an amends? Have I harmed anyone? Did I live in fear today? Was I selfish more than I was selfless? What could I have done better? It gives me the ability to analyze my day, to set myself up for success, to end the day on a positive note because it says, don't drift into morbid reflection or worry or remorse. If we haven't had the best day, correct it and fix it because I have to catch a win on the day. The sum of my actions has to reflect the man that I want to be in God's will, and I have to pick up a win for the day. It's about a series of rituals, a series of moments, and I got to win more than I lose on a day-to-day basis. And I'll analyze that at the end of the night, and the next thing it goes, it says, upon awakening. So now when I awake, I start to see how I'm going to start my day, how I could be better, what corrective measures could I have taken? If I have to if I have some decisions I got to make I pray about them I ask I don't struggle I just wait for my higher power to put those thoughts to put that action to put those people in my life that gives me the ability to respond and not react and to make healthy decisions and choices because I'm not powerless anymore I'm powerful today because I have this power that flows through me called God So don't struggle and I start to get these prayers that I use as tools in my life, whether it's the serenity prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the St. Francis prayer, the Eleven step prayer. It's a very powerful prayer and it can basically compares self-will versus God's will. Is it the Ten step prayer? Is it the Eleven step prayer? Thy will be done, not mine. May I do thy will always. What is it that allows you to reconnect? Because remember, faith without works is dead. One of the most valuable tools of step 11 is to pause when agitated. Pause. Take a second. Breathe. Get connected to God's will. Take a moment and respond to a situation in a healthy way. And ultimately we go into step 12. And step 12 for me is the the main part because to teach something is to master. It's one thing to believe in a higher power and it's another thing to experience that higher power working in your life. But it's a whole nother thing when you see someone, when you have the privilege of sponsoring that individual and you get to see them recover right in front of your eyes and a miracle happen, then you watch that person go work with somebody else. It's a miracle. Now you're not believing in God, you're experiencing him not only in your own life but in the lives of others. Because remember, Nothing so much will ensure immunity from drinking and drugging than intensive work with other alcoholics. That's the first line of the page of the chapter. Intensive work with other alcoholics. Watching a fellowship grow up among us to watch people recover is the highlight of our day. But you got to remember, you can never force yourself on anyone. You can't want it more than they do. And be careful You get, you know, step 12 just gives you a whole bunch of suggestions on your first meeting, your second meeting, just some things to be careful of, to watch out for. Because we don't, we always got to remember, man, that the, the biggest thing for me is the most valuable thing I can give to anyone is my time. That's the most valuable thing. Because once I start giving them things and paying for things and letting them move in with me and doing all these things, I have to watch their motives. I have to watch my motives and I could be abling them. I could be hurting him more than I could be helping him. I got to remember those things. And the first meeting gives us some suggestions on that. And then again, you know, the breakdown of the steps and then the spiritual solution to be able to explain that to him. Then it goes into a second meeting, right? And and it also talks about being the good Samaritan. I have to do these things anytime, anywhere. When God puts someone in front of me, I have to be willing to suit up and show up and extend the hand of of Alcoholics Anonymous to him because I'm responsible for that. But one of the most important parts for me that always sticks out, it says job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop using if we place dependence upon people ahead of dependence upon God. The main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. The point is, is to find God of your own understanding. It talks about being spiritually fit, man. We could do all sorts of remarkable things that alcoholic and addicts aren't supposed to do. But the most important part about step 12, it gives you the ability to forgive yourself. Because that's the million dollar question. How do you forgive yourself for the guilt, the shame, the horrible things that you've done to the people you love your most? How do you do that? By utilizing your past to help others. Your past becoming your greatest asset. We don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Every time I sit down with someone, I do a four-step and a fifth step. Every time I share at a meeting and people are nodding their heads. Every time I hear someone say something that relates to my story and I approach them after the meeting, every time I have meaningful conversations about the past, I become grateful for it. And over a period of time of doing that enough, I don't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. One of my most valuable tools today is my previous experience because I'm more qualified to help others. That's what step 12 is all about. Not only that, but to teach something is the master and you're continuously working the steps. And if you're like me, you have to do it over and over and over again to retain it. Working out and recovery are the same thing. I have to hit sets and reps on a day-to-day basis because if I don't, I'll lose it. Same thing working out, same thing with recovery. But it'll be the highlight of your day. I can promise you it's an experience you don't want to miss. Everybody learns from mistakes with step 12, but the most thing, the biggest thing that you have to remember, the only way you fail your sponsee is by not showing up. That's it, man, because that power will show up if you do, and that power that flows through you gives you the ability to connect with that individual, and then you become spiritually intoxicated. So that's kind of just like a brief rundown of all the steps, man, just kind of just going over them and just touching bases on little things. Everybody's journey looks different, right? Everybody's experience is different, but the steps, it's not my program, it's the program. The book, it says the book's meant to be suggestive only. That's a whole nother discussion. I could do a whole episode on that. For me, it tells me exactly what I do, what I need to do. If I want what they have, I got to do what they did. But I get it. This is the final episode of season one. And it's just been such a blessing, man, to have this platform, this opportunity. I want to thank everyone out there for all their continued support and the ones reaching out to me and the people I've been able to reconnect with all over the world that have reached out to me and I've been able just to point them in the right direction or be someone supportive or I could just listen or I could help or I could share suggestions or I can get them to a meeting. The guys that have reached out to me that I'm sponsoring now, the comments that I get from everyone. It just warms my heart and it's just, I'm just filled with gratitude. So I just want to take this last moment just to thank everyone for being supportive and being a part of my recovery because it takes a team. The next episode will be the first episode of season two and season two is going to be all friends, family, recovery, all stars sharing their experience, their strength, their hope, their journey. So everyone can kind of see how similar we are, but how everyone's recovery journey looks different. Everybody's journey to find recovery, to get to that point of pain and desperation and misery, looks a little different too. So tune in for season two because it's going to be awesome. So buckle up.